The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Improving Outcomes in Pediatric Growth Hormone Deficiency with Effective Diagnosis and Personalized Management Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZAB 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, I'm Brad Miller from the University of Minnesota Medical School and M-Health Fairview Masonic Children's Hospital. I'd like to welcome you to this educational activity on improving outcomes in pediatric growth hormone deficiency in the context of a patient-centered approach. Joining me in this discussion is Dr. Alicia Romano from New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York. Thank you. Glad to be here. Today, we'll be talking about improving outcomes in pediatric growth hormone deficiency with effective diagnosis and personalized management strategies. Our goals for tonight are to utilize relevant diagnostic tests to provide timely diagnosis of pediatric patients suspected with growth hormone deficiency. Compare the clinical characteristics and supporting evidence, such as efficacy, safety and tolerability, ease of administration, and dosing frequency for various options in growth hormone therapy. And finally, to incorporate growth hormone therapy into personalized management plans to address pediatric patient challenges, including dosing concerns, administration, adherence, and monitoring. And I'd like to invite Dr. Romano to start off our discussion on diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency. Thank you, Dr. Miller. So I will be discussing the updated guidelines on the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency. As we know, growth is an important measure of health in children. Abnormal growth can present in a variety of ways, including short stature, known as height more than two standard deviations below the mean for age within a population, a height that's inappropriately less than the genetic target height, and or a growth deceleration. Now, the etiology can be congenital, acquired, or idiopathic. We know that growth is affected by many, many factors, and we'll be focusing on growth hormone deficiency, but we know that underlying medical conditions, socioeconomic factors, as we see in psychosocial growth deprivation, and nutrition can affect growth. Now, there are numerous etiologies of short stature. These include genetic causes, as we know, Turner syndrome, Noonan syndrome, Prader-Willi syndrome, children who are born small for gestational age, children with skeletal dysplasias such as achondroplasia or hypochondroplasia, isolated or idiopathic short stature, children with chronic systemic diseases such as chronic kidney disease, intestinal inflammatory bowel disease, disorders of the growth hormone IGF-1 axis such as growth hormone deficiency, IGF-1 deficiency, or Shock's deficiency. Now, many of these conditions are rare, affecting less than 200,000 people in the U.S., Short stature is the most common reason for referral to a pediatric endocrinologist. And although normal variants of growth, such as constitutional growth delay, may explain some pediatric short stature, 
serious medical conditions, including growth hormone deficiency, may be the cause of short stature. Regular height measurement is an important means of monitoring health status in children so that timely diagnosis and optimization of health outcomes can occur. And timely and accurate diagnosis of pediatric growth hormone deficiency is key. We know that improved height outcomes have occurred with an earlier age of treatment initiation with growth hormone and a longer duration of treatment with growth hormone before the onset of puberty. And in this slide, we see near adult height outcomes in 172 patients who were started either at an early age, an intermediate age, or an older age. And we see that there were significant improvements in the near adult height outcome in those children who were treated at an earlier age. So how do we screen and diagnose for pediatric growth hormone deficiency? Here we see different characteristics of pediatric growth hormone deficiency. These include short stature, a delayed bone age, a low IGF-1 level, poor growth velocity, and growth hormone deficiency on testing. Now we know that not all of these characteristics need to be present in order to make the diagnosis of pediatric growth hormone deficiency, as we may see, for example, in a 14-year-old pubertal boy who sustained head trauma from, say, an ATV accident or with a sports-related injury. They may not have an abnormal height at the time of diagnosis or a delayed bone age. So the physical examination, the history, and the oxology are really the foundation of establishing the diagnosis of pediatric growth hormone deficiency. And here we see the clinical criteria um, considerations in the evaluation of growth failure. That is, these include the absolute height. Is it less than minus two standard deviations below the mean for age? What is the parental height and the background height? And is this height inappropriate for the genetic target height? Is there a change in the height SDS so that we see a growth deceleration or crossing centiles on the growth chart? And lastly, are there phenotypic features that might be suggestive of a growth problem? And again, remember that a growth hormone deficient diagnosis does not require a height cutoff, especially in the context of very young children with hypoglycemia and or midline defects or recently developed growth hormone deficiency, as I just mentioned, in traumatic brain injury, but also in radiation therapy-induced or intrathecal chemotherapy-induced growth failure. And we know that having um, growth data from previous growth charts is particularly helpful in assessing where there is a change in the growth velocity in children who have a problem that suddenly causes a change in their growth. So here we see an algorithm for the diagnostic evaluation for a child with short stature who may be suspected of having growth hormone deficiency. 
And this includes the three main categories of a clinical assessment, hormonal evaluation, and genetic investigation, typically after some initial screening studies. These initial screening studies may include serum electrolytes to make sure that there are no kidney abnormalities such as renal tubular acidosis. Um, children can have thyroid function tests to rule out hypothyroidism, celiac screen in order to make sure there's no celiac disease, a karyotype in girls with short stature to make sure there's no Turner syndrome. A clinic, the clinical assessment should certainly contain a thorough history, which should include a birth weight and length, um, family history of sizes, any other medical issues that are going on. The examination should include a height, growth velocity, and weight. Um, the endocrine evaluation can include further laboratory studies, such as an IGF-1, IGF-BP3, perhaps some gonadotropins, a brain MRI or dynamic testing, including growth hormone stimulation testing or an IGF-1 um, generation test. And genetic investigations may be conducted depending on the phenotype, phenotypic features of the child. So here we see recent guidance on investigating defects in growth hormone IGF-1 axis. And we know that we should start with measuring an IGF-1 level. And then if it is normal or elevated to consider IGF-1 and sensitivity and a comparison of a low IGF-1 with, in conjunction with growth hormone levels will determine whether this may be growth hormone deficiency or whether growth hormone insensitivity. Growth hormone provocative testing can be utilized in the assessment of growth hormone secretory capacity. A variety of agents have been used in growth hormone provocative testing, including arginine, clonidine, glucagon, insulin, L-DOPA, and Macy morellin. In the United States, the cutoff is 10 nanograms per ml, and this is the current guidance, but lower cutoff values have been used in other countries. Now, the current guidance recommends against reliance on growth hormone provocative testing as the sole criterion for growth hormone deficiency. There are no randomized control studies to show correlation of growth hormone provocative testing results and near and adult height. Peak growth hormone values may be different among provocative agents with inconsistent inter and intrapatient reproducibility. The growth hormone response to provocative testing depends on BMI and is considerably lower in obese children. There is limited sensitivity and specificity of provocative testing. We know that different assays can lead to misdiagnosis, confounding the clinical management. And so harmonization of growth hormone assays has been recommended. And an inadequate response to two different provocative tests is required for diagnosis. So current guidance on provocative testing, when provocative testing is to be used, the um, recommendation has been that a, for 
the somatropin standard is used in assays, and they are harmonized as recommended in the 2006 and 2011 consensus statements. Sex steroid priming in prepubital boys over 11 years and in prepubital girls over 10 years with adult height prognosis within minus two SDs of the reference population has also been recommended. And there are recommendations against the use of spontaneous growth hormone secretion in a clinical setting. Where no provocative testing is required includes patients with oxalogic criteria of hypothalamic pituitary defect and deficiency of at least one additional pituitary hormone. Newborns with growth hormone deficiency due to congenital hypopituitarism who are hypoglycemic and do not have a growth hormone concentration over five micrograms per liter and a deficiency of at least one additional pituitary hormone and or the classical imaging triad of an ectopic posterior pituitary and pituitary hypoplasia with abnormal stalk. So these are the recommendations in terms of when provocative testing is to be used and not. So what about sex steroid priming in prepubertal children? It has been recommended as we just discussed, and there are reasons for in terms of including, in terms of increasing specificity of the growth hormone stimulation tests and decreasing false positives. However, the reasons against are that there is no standardization in the methodology of priming. There's no evidence that priming with sex steroids is physiologic in the peripubital child. The ideal age for priming has not been defined, and there's a lack of data with regard to the need to adjust the growth hormone cutoff level for the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency when priming is used. Sex steroid priming is inconsistent. In a survey of U.S. pediatric endocrinologists in 1995, it was shown that two-thirds of pediatric endocrinologists never use sex steroid priming, and another third sometimes do. Additionally, there were differences in the methodology in terms of the type of steroid use, the dose, the dosing schedule, and at what stage of development they were utilized. Is genetic testing a new direction along the roadmap for investigating short stature, and when is it appropriate? New molecular technology has shown that genetic causes of short stature not only affect the growth hormone IGF-1 axis, but the growth plate as well. And consensus that genetic and or epigenetic testing is not required for children with short stature, but that it should be utilized in the diagnostic assessment of specific groups of children whose phenotype suggests a high likelihood of a genetic cause. And these include severe familial forms of isolated growth hormone deficiency or specific syndromic forms of multiple pituitary hormone deficiencies, children with severe short stature, like minus three SDs for the population or more than three standard deviations lower than the mid-parental target height, body disproportions and or skeletal dysplasia, and children with SGA who did not present adequate catch-up growth and may have other phenotypic features as well. And now 
we're going to discuss a case. And this is a child who presented to the pediatric endocrinologist at the age of 16 months for poor weight gain and growth. And this child it was the full-term seven-pound, one-ounce product of a full-term gestation born by cesarean section for um, a repeat um, C-section. The birth length was normal at 20 inches, and the medical history was only significant for mild developmental delay in motor milestones, milestones and cognition. The parental heights were normal or above normal with a maternal height of 64 inches and the father's height at 71 inches. They had normal pubertal timing. This child had normal baseline labs, but did have a persistently low IGF-1 value. He was seen by the gastroenterology team and was negative and did have a negative GI workup. So his diagnosis was failure to thrive and he was started on ciproheptadine, although he did have a poor response to this. It was felt that he was unlikely to be growth hormone deficient because he had a failure to thrive that affected his weight. And this is his growth curve. And we see that as he um, aged, that the growth deceleration continued. And at the age of six and two years, growth hormone provocative testing was performed. And he achieved a peak growth hormone value of 2.3 milligrams per liter with clonidine and 2.5 with arginine. And he did have a normal peak cortisol response to low dose ACT stimulation and was known to have normal thyroid functions. So at this point, because of the growth hormone deficiency, an MRI was ordered and it was found, as we see in the slide, that he had an ectopic posterior pituitary gland. And so this child has the diagnosis of isolated growth hormone deficiency and an ectopic posterior pituitary gland. And now I'm going to turn the um, slides over to Dr. Miller. Thank you, Alicia. Um, I'd like to uh, transition now to talk about how has the treatment landscape for growth hormone therapies advanced in recent years? And we'll come back to the uh, case that Alicia just described and talk about how that's relevant for the patient as uh, we move forward. So we know that uh, growth hormone has been used worldwide now for more than 35 years to successfully treat children with short stature due to growth hormone deficiency. And we have more than 500,000 patient years of, of exposure data demonstrating its safety. We know that the adverse events are rare, uh, and we know that they include pseudotumor cerebri, slip femoral epiphysis, and rare pancreatitis and worsening of scoliosis. It's strongly recommended for children with pediatric growth hormone deficiency that growth hormone treatment be used because of its benefits, including increased growth, achievement of near normal adult height, and improvements in quality of life that have been demonstrated. The dosing of uh, growth hormone, a single subcutaneous daily injection of growth hormone can provide physiologic replacement uh, based upon IGF-1 levels. The dosing should be based upon body weight or body surface area, and it's typically used as body weight in the United States. 
The recommended starting doses uh, per the um, label is 0.16 to 0.24 milligram per kilogram per week, and higher doses may be necessary in puberty, often up to 0.4 milligram per kilogram per week, though doses up to 0.7 are actually FDA approved. Serum IGF-1 levels may be used to monitor adherence and the response to growth hormone dose changes, and there's some evidence that IGF-1 targets may have an impact on short-term growth and potentially long-term growth. It's important to consider decreasing the growth hormone dose if the IGF-1 levels are elevated above plus two or plus three standard deviations, though we have not seen any particular side effects with those um, elevated levels, the concern is that we are trying to uh, provide physiologic replacement. When we're thinking about how long children need to be treated, uh, you, we recommend that growth hormone therapy be discontinued for linear growth when the growth velocity falls to less than 2 to 2.5 centimeters per year. It's important that kids are seen regularly to monitor their response to treatment. Um, and so we see kids every three to six months. Bone ages are typically done uh, every one to two years, though it may be more frequently during puberty. It's not routinely recommended that any additional testing uh, be performed uh, during pediatric growth hormone deficiency treatment, such as cardiac testing, DEXA scanning, or measurement of lipid profiles. When we think about the adjustments during puberty and the transition to adulthood, um, I mentioned the pubertal dosing, and you can see that the IGF-1 levels actually increase significantly during that pubertal growth spurt in, in children, and that's the basis behind which growth hormone doses may need to increase during puberty because we naturally make more growth hormone during the pubertal growth spurt. However, based upon the guidelines and my clinical experience during puberty, we um, do not always need to go up to 0.7 milligram per kilogram per week, so it shouldn't be the norm for every child. I also think personally that the use of IGF-1 base dosing can optimize the necessary dose adjustment of uh, prepubertal and prepubertal pubertal dosing uh, on a highly individualized basis with significantly lower doses. So I think in our hands, we can guide the uh, dose adjustments as is needed at, based upon growth, pubertal status, bone age, and um, IGF-1 levels. I think it's important to recognize that with daily growth hormone, um, based upon all of the um, uh, post-marketing registries, that we still aren't achieving um, outcomes that are appropriate for the population. And so on the left, you can see in the KIGS database, children started at minus 2.4 standard deviations and ended up at minus 0.8. And across the group, we can see that we don't achieve a height standard deviation of, of zero. So we're definitely improving height and the average child is getting into the normal range, but not quite to uh, the target. I think it's important to recognize that with daily growth hormone, we have issues with adherence, um, and that lack of adherence can impact um, linear growth. And uh, this is a study by Rosenfeld and Bacher um, from 2008, where they uh, did surveys with families, uh, parents of child, and the teens to ask about 
how they were doing in terms of compliance and their motivation. I thought it was interesting to see that only 30% were describing themselves as perfectly compliant and motivated, and 23%, and these are parents of children, uh, school-age kids, were uh, non-compliant and skeptical. If you move over to the teenagers, you can see that 33% of them were non-compliant and skeptical, and that only 23% were perfectly compliant and motivated. So we can see this happens both on um, an age basis as well as an independence basis, that as kids are giving their own shots or becoming more independent and more active, that uh, continuing uh, treatment can be more difficult. The, the duration of treatment also impacts that. So these are the different factors that might affect adherence to growth hormone therapy. Some of them are disease related. Um, the prognosis and clinical course of growth hormone deficiency, how has the child actually responded? The absence of feeling ill. Patients don't feel any different if they don't take their shot on a particular day. So they can miss a number of shots and not feel any different and not recognize that it could be impacting their growth. Patient-related, um, how do they get along with their doctor? How do they understand their disease? What's their age and stage of development, uh, including the patient and the parents? Um, are there reasons that they might be more likely to forget the medication? Are there health benefits and beliefs that might impact uh, their compliance? Treatment-related, uh, we'll talk about in more detail about the number of doses, the frequency of doses, the painful um, uh, the pain related to the dose. We're experiencing a lot of healthcare system related issues of pharmacy shipping delays, insurance denials, and copays that I think has a huge impact on um, the uh, ongoing compliance and persistence of patients. And lastly, physician related. How well are we doing at helping our patients understand the importance of the daily injections? the importance of the medication for not only growth, but other um, non-growth related benefits for children with growth hormone deficiency. And what is our medical competency and that of our teams? Um, you know, we have to make sure that everybody talking to families uh, about growth hormone deficiency really understands um, the different components that they need to share with the family and not just once, but on multiple different bases. Uh, time points so that the family has multiple opportunities to learn about the importance of the condition and its treatment. Medication persistence. This was a registry analysis from the ANSWER registry that looked at why people stopped growth hormone treatment. And about a third of patients, and this is a U.S. study, stopped because of uh, final height was achieved or adult height was achieved in their perspective or their physician's perspective. But interestingly, about a fourth of the patients stopped because of insurance issues. This be could, could be because of an insurance switch that they just switch products, but it also could be that they were denied continued therapy. We can also see that patient or care, caregiver decisions were part of the decision-making, non-adherence, provider recommendations, and a few were lost to follow-up. But I'm concerned when we see the reason for discontinuation of being done growing is such a small percentage of the children. 
I want to emphasize that daily growth hormone is non-physiologic. Um, we currently think about growth hormone therapy as a once daily injection. And you can see from the, um, the dotted lines at the bottom of what is the natural pituitary secretion that we see in multiple different pulses with the peaks of pulses happening at night. When we give a daily injection, we have one big pulse of growth hormone and then it uh, disappears over time. So daily growth hormone is, is not a physiologic process. And so when we think about long-acting preparations, we are also concerned that they could be um, non-physiologic, but they may also have attributes that will allow them to provide a replacement for growth hormone as a daily injection. So here are some of the ideal attributes of a long-acting growth hormone. We'd like to decrease the inconvenience or the number of shots. We're hopeful that it will improve adherence maintain the IGF-1 in a physiologic range through most of the treatment cycle, that we won't have injection site reactions or lipodystrophy, lipoatrophy that we see in uh, children receiving growth hormone, that it might be worse because it's a longer acting. We'd like it to be minimal pain, uh, allow a small needle size and low dose volume, and we'd like the cost to be comparable to daily growth hormone therapy. Right now I'll talk about approved or emerging uh, long-acting growth hormone preparations in uh, total, and then I'll talk more specifically about some of those molecules. So there've been a number of different technologies that have uh, been used to try and make growth hormone more long-lasting. They include uh, depot technology, uh, pegylation um, that have not been approved in the US, um, a prodrug form, uh, lonopeg somatropin, that has been approved now for almost two years for pediatric growth hormone deficiency and has other studies ongoing. Uh, somapacitan is using a non-covalent albumin binding technology um, that has also been approved for both pediatric and a growth, adult growth hormone deficiency and has other studies ongoing. Somatrogon that was uh, just approved and um, uh, some additional fusion protein technologies that are currently under investigation uh, in other parts of the world. So to focus on some of the approved molecules, I'd like to uh, go through each one of them, including their um, uh, clinical studies. So first I'll talk about lonopeg somatropin, including its mechanism of action. You can see in the cartoon that um, it's a pegylated uh, growth hormone, an inactive prodrug that includes the unmodified growth hormone, 22 kilodalton uh, growth hormone, attached to a linker um, and covered by the, um, the peg to protect the growth hormone molecule um, in the circulation. That linker is actually cleaved when the uh, molecule is injected into the body in physiologic conditions, releasing the native uh, growth hormone molecule to interact with the growth hormone receptor. And then that carrier uh, peg is uh, cleared by the kidneys. This is administered using an auto injector um, and is now commercially available for kids to uh, use to, I'd like to focus on the, um, the clinical trials that have led to its approval. So first we've got the HEIGHT trial where it was a, a 
um, head-to-head trial with daily growth hormone therapy, the flight trial where children were switched from daily growth hormone to once-weekly lonopeg somatropin, and the enlightened study, which is the extension study for each of those other trials where they just continued on once-weekly lonopeg somatropin. Um, during the enlightened trial, also children switched from uh, vial and syringe to the auto-injector. So um, they had experience with the auto-injector before it became commercially available. So these are the results from the uh, phase three height trial. And you can see in the right upper panel, the, the take home message is that the height velocity at 52 weeks of children receiving 0.24 milligram per kilogram per week of lonopeg somatropin grew 11.2 centimeters per year compared to children receiving 0.24 milligrams per kilogram per week of daily growth hormone at 10.3 centimeters per year. The estimated treatment difference uh, demonstrated non-inferiority, which was the, the clinical target, as well as statistical superiority. And on the slide in the left, you can see that the height standard deviation score in children receiving once-weekly lonopeg somatropin um, started to differ from the children receiving daily growth hormone as early as 13 weeks in the study. It's also important to recognize that as the trial has continued, um, in the extension phase uh, for two years and beyond, we have seen continued height gains and no new safety concerns in children receiving lonopeg somatropin. Now I'd like to talk about somapacitan. In the left panel, you can see the blue colored uh, growth hormone 22 kilodalton molecule with a single amino acid change where uh, they've attached a uh, albumin binding linker, a, a, a fatty acid chain that allows the growth hormone molecule, the modified growth hormone molecule to bind to endogenous albumin. So essentially using the same technology that they've used for other molecules, um, uh, insulins and GLP-1 agonists to make them long-acting, you have a temporary connection with albumin that prolongs the half-life of growth hormone in the, uh, in the body. It's important on the right panel to see that you can actually get the somapacitan to the growth plate where it, it's demonstrated to be activating the receptor. Um, somapacitan was approved for adult growth hormone deficiency in August of 2020 and for pediatric growth hormone deficiency in April of 2023 and is administered using a disposable pen similar to that uh, that we've seen previously for daily growth hormone with nortotropin. Um, these are the clinical data for somapacitan, the phase three real four study where children were randomized to receive either um, uh, weekly somapacitan at 0.16 milligram per kilogram per week or daily growth hormone at 0.034 milligram per kilogram per day. And then an extension study uh, up to three years where children were receiving uh, just the once weekly somapacitan. Um, and you can see in this panel, we have the trial design in the upper part, and we have the trial results in the middle, where the children receiving once weekly somapacitan grew 11.2 centimeters per year at 52 weeks, versus the children receiving daily somatropin, uh, daily growth hormone of 11.7 centimeters per year. Again, this reached the uh, goal of non-inferiority, showing that uh, um, children receiving 
soma pasitan once weekly grew as well as the children receiving once daily growth hormone. And again, just uh, accepted this week, we have the additional phase two results um, of the uh, uh, real four trial, uh, demonstrating that there's continued growth in uh, phase three. And in the previous phase two trial, we have up to um, three years showing superior height gain um, of uh, uh, weekly somapacitin compared to daily somatropin and no new safety concerns. And um, lastly, I'd like to describe the most recently approved uh, once weekly molecule, somatrogon. Um, the clinical trial on the um, upper panel, we see uh, children were randomized to receive either 0.66 milligram per kilogram per week of somatrogon or uh, once weekly or um, daily somatropin at 0.24 milligram per kilogram per day. And then again, they were randomized or they continued in an extension trial thereafter. In the middle of the panel, we can see somatrogan was um, the children receiving once weekly somatrogan grew 10.2 one centimeters per year versus the daily group of 9.78 centimeters per year, um, which again shows non-inferiority of the daily somatro of the weekly somatrogon compared to the daily growth hormone with similar safety profiles. So I think it's important to recognize that we have safety and efficacy for the once weekly products. So I'd like to compare all of the three options that are currently available for um, an FDA approved in the United States for long-acting growth hormone. Starting with lonopeg somatropin, uh, it is a, the mechanism of action is reversible pegylation. Somapacitan is acylation, which increases its binding to albumin. And somatrogon, which is a fusion protein with the uh, three portions of the human chorionic gonadotropin CTP added to the molecule. The differences in molecular weight, lonopeg somatropin releases a native growth hormone unmodified at 22 kilodaltons. Somapacitan has a mild modification of 23.3 um, kilodaltons because of the fatty acid chain. And somatrogon is 41 kilodaltons, or about twice the size of the native growth hormone molecule because of the addition of the three HCG CTPs. The dose is slightly different between the three uh, molecules based upon the clinical trial data that I presented and based upon the modifications to the molecule. I think it's important to recognize that the height velocity in the children receiving once weekly long acting growth hormone compared to the children receiving daily growth hormone was similar in all three groups. And it's difficult to compare the three different trials except to say that it was non-inferior in each situation. It's also important to recognize that we are continuing to see height gains in the extension studies for each of these molecules. And lastly, in the bottom panel, the IG estimated I average IGF-1 level on long-acting growth hormone will be a very important concept for us to, to think about as we transition from daily growth hormone, where we get an average IGF-1 level whenever we measure it, versus once weekly, um, long-acting growth hormone, where the IGF-1 average has to be estimated or uh, calculated based upon the pharmacodynamic profile. But I also think that the IGF-1 standard deviation score 
average will be very important marker for efficacy and safety outcomes for long-acting growth hormone. So there's some unique concerns that will arise with long-acting growth hormone. Some of them will be related to the modified growth hormone molecule, whether it's immunogenicity, limited access of the modified growth hormone to target tissue, fusion protein-specific effects, possibly larger injection volume. I think a big one is going to be lack of experience with the new therapy for pediatric endocrinologists and lack of knowledge of how to adjust the dose. Um, a need for guidance to interpret IGF-1 results, which we'll talk about more. Responses to therapy. Will there be differences in the growth response and the metabolic activity of growth hormone due to that lack of pulsatility or difference from the normal physiologic uh, production? Is there a potential increase in the risk of malignancy due to persistent growth hormone or IGF-1 exposure with long-acting growth hormone that does not exist with daily? And so I want to emphasize the need for long-term safety and efficacy data. Then we want to think about which kids should actually transition to once-weekly long-acting growth hormone or which kids should start on it and never be on daily. So transitioning, um, it's FDA approved for children with growth hormone deficiency. Which ones do we pick? I think the, the best group is going to be those that are having adherence issues with chronic daily injections and who wish to continue treatment with growth hormone therapy. But we also have to think about children where there might be an increased risk, uh, you know, underlying condition with potential risk to uh, long-acting growth hormone. Those with uh, malignancy, a genetic risk of malignancy, insulin resistance, or infants with hypoglycemia. So as we have the long-acting growth hormone molecules available, we'll have to pick who is the best patient for it. I'd like to come back to the patient that uh, Alicia talked about earlier and say, why would this patient be um, a candidate for growth hormone, long-acting growth hormone? Um, and as the child has an ectopic posterior pituitary, the increase, it increases the risk to need uh, lifelong growth hormone therapy. The patient is currently growing stably along a trajectory consistent with the midparental target height, and patient and the family are having difficulty with daily injection due to increased independence and sports-related activities as he enters middle school. There aren't any complaints of pain related to the injection, but it's more about the daily task and the process necessary to complete it every day is becoming more challenging due to schedule and the teenager's motivations. I think this is a really common situation that we experience with our patients where as they get older, treatment fatigue sets in, their height isn't changing as much as it used to, and it's more of a challenge to do a daily growth hormone. So I think there are a couple of different uh, aspects of this patient that really um, push them in that direction. So this patient could be converted to uh, from daily growth hormone at a dose of 43 microgram per kilogram per day, uh, or 0.3 mg per kg per week, to once weekly growth hormone at a dose of 0.24. Um, the IGF-1 measured four days later after the fourth injection of the long-acting growth hormone IGF-1 was uh, elevated at plus 2.5, and so a, a dose reduction was recommended or uh, uh, provided 
to 0.2 milligram per kilogram per week, which was the next lower bracket, uh, about 17% reduction. And the IGF-1 was again measured four days after the fourth injection of the reduced dose uh, with an IGF-1 of plus one standard deviations. Parents have reported that the transition from daily to weekly went smoothly with minor adjustments to the new injection device. Um, and now that the injection is once per week, there are fewer arguments and necessary reminders about the injection. The flexibility of injection timing has been helpful when parents or patient have been away for a meeting or vacation or sporting event and could give the injection a day or two early or a day or two late. And it's important to see that the patient has continued to grow well on long-acting growth hormone. So now we'd like to transition into how can endocrinologists provide uh, patient-centered care in pediatric growth hormone deficiency. And uh, Dr. Romano will begin with this section and then I'll uh, wrap it up from there. So when we look at growth hormone deficiency from the perspectives of patients and caregivers, we know that um, they can look at, they're impacted by their growth hormone deficiency in a variety of ways. It's above and beyond just the short stature. And in surveys and focus groups, um, different um, areas have been assessed, including signs and symptoms, um, physical aspects of daily life, as we see on this slide. And in terms of what kinds of things bothered them, problems reaching things, reduced performance and physical activity in sports, um, poor sleep, poor energy, poor appetite by some. Um, also, you know, children complained that they were smaller or the smallest among their peers. Um, they may have noted a reduced strength or poor muscle development. In other areas, in terms of social well-being or emotional well-being, some of the children were worried about growing and their parents had concerns about this as well. Um, they worried about feeling different. Um, they disliked, you know, or were bothered by their height or their size. Um, they might have felt like they didn't fit in or there was some social um, in unease. Um, we also, um, that was reported in terms of emotional well-being was some teasing or bullying, as we all know and see in our practice of children that we take care of who are small, and being mistaken for the younger child, as in being asked if they want the um, children's menu when they're, you know, older teens. And then... When we look at the burden of daily growth hormone therapy, the common issues that are seen during growth hormone treatment um, can be categorized in two categories. One related to the injection and possible pain with the injection versus just that organization that Dr. Miller talked about, getting to the shot, the organization of doing the injection. And we can see here the children's um, perceptions you know, that there were pain and injection in the younger children, not as much in the adolescents, but then the daily task of getting to it, you know, for the adolescents was more of an issue. And parents were affected by these things as well. And we know that the role of the healthcare team in growth hormone deficiency management is very important. And with respect to you know, treating with growth hormone, there really needs to be the 
the um, pa proper patient identification. And this may be either through the um, physician or um, prov um, healthcare provider recommend recommending either daily or long-acting growth hormone, or the patient may actually request this as we now see patients hearing about things and asking about them as um, in all aspects of healthcare. And it's also important that um, we have patient education. And this is involves the administration procedure for growth hormone, the storage and care of growth hormone and the growth hormone devices, talking about the length of treatment and importance of adherence and importance of timing of the long-acting growth hormone administration and what to do if life happens and we miss a dose. Very important. And then patient follow-up, not only in terms of efficacy, in terms of seeing how they're growing and how their standard deviation score is changing and general safety monitoring, um, but also, um, you know, and timing and interpretation of the IGF-1 level to guide dosing, but also that patients become a part of seeing how they're progressing and how they're doing and reinforcing their progress for what they're doing in order to achieve these great results. And that allows us with this follow-up to reinforce things and also to recognize if additional education is needed. So using the SDMQ9 tool ensures that patients are included in decision-making. And this is a tool that has been used to ensure that healthcare professionals include patients in the medical decision-making process. And this slide just shows a scheme where a patient talks about going through this decision for what kind of growth hormone they should be deciding upon. So my doctor made, a, made it clear that a decision needs to be made. And then my doctor wanted to know exactly how I wanted to be involved in making the decision. My doctor told me that there are different options for treating my medical condition, and they precisely explain the advantages and disadvantages of the treatment options. My doctor helped me understand all the information, then asked me which treatment option I prefer, and I thoroughly weighed the different treatment options with my doctor. My doctor and I selected the treatment option together, and then my doctor and I reached an agreement on how to proceed. So this tool enables the patient and the healthcare provider to make the decision together in terms of what's the right therapy for them. And next, Dr. Miller will continue with individualized treatment for IGF-1-based dosing and our conclusions for this program. Thank you, Alicia. Um, the IGF-1-based dosing, we've talked uh, quite a lot through today about how IGF-1 is used for diagnosis and a little bit about how it's used in um, daily growth hormone therapy. And now we have to think about how do we interpret it as we do um, long-acting therapy. So um, IGF-1 is the pharmacodynamic marker of growth hormone sensitivity and its levels correlate with growth outcomes. We've been using it in clinical practice, both for safety and efficacy. And it has um, uh, allowed us to individualize based upon the disease state. 
There are recommended targets. Um, you know, if you have a child with organic growth hormone deficiency, you may target zero standard deviations. Um, if you have somebody who is a cancer survivor, you may target uh, the mean. And for a child who has poor growth, idiopathic short stature, small for gestational age, IGF deficiency, or growth hormone deficiency with a significant amount of need to catch up, you may target a higher IGF-1 with your daily treatment. It also helps to identify compliance and related issues and can assist us as we're trying to determine whether kids need uh, growth hormone therapy into adulthood. There's some suggestion that there might be a cost benefit if we optimize um, dosing using IGF-1. And there are using the IGF-1 value protects us from the theoretical concerns of high IGF-1, though I've mentioned earlier that um, we haven't identified specific adverse events related to high IGF-1s in children receiving growth hormone. Um, so I think it's a major safety assurance strategy, but also efficacy in the ways that we use IGF-1 to individualize treatment for kids. But I think it's gonna be um, a challenge in how we then look at it with uh, daily growth or with once weekly growth hormone. And um, uh, I'd like to start with the profile of what IGF-1 looks like in the pharmacodynamics of a once weekly injection with lonopeg somatropin. And you can see in the pattern that the uh, IGF-1 increases uh, from a, a new baseline um, after you've established the steady state, and then peaks around two and a half, between two and two and a half days, and then starts to fall back to the baseline. And for each of the products, there's a slightly different uh, pharmacodynamic profile, but around three to four days is, uh, is when we're seeing the average IGF-1 predicted to be. And so um, each of the companies have now developed um, algorithms and tables so that we can uh, determine the IGF-1 based upon the timing of the dose and the timing of the blood draw. And so in this diagram, you can see that if you measure an IGF-1 on day two, you're actually going to have to subtract um, uh, the value to get to an average value for day four. If you do it on day five, you're going to have to add back to the um, IGF-1 value. And that's gonna be based upon the lookup table um, or the constant, you know, for an IGF-1 standard deviation or a concentration ratio. And so for each of the molecules, you, can, you need to know when the growth hormone dose was given and when the blood draw was taken and then use the table to come up with an average IGF-1 that will be much more similar to what our uh, average IGF-1 on daily growth hormone therapy was. So I think it'll be important to that we understand this concept that getting an IGF-1 on a random day can give us a very high value and not really reflect what the average is or a very low value. And so we want to be able to easily convert that in practice. And so I was part of the um, uh, modeling paper for lonopeg somatropin and um, uh, a recent um, uh, presentation about IGF-1 following treatment with somapacitan, which gives similar information about how we can adjust the IGF-1 value based upon the timing that it was drawn. So I think that'll be an important concept.
And lastly, I want to talk about the flexibility of uh, I, of dosing. And this shows the IGF-1 dosing specifically with somapacitin when you change the uh, timing of the dosing day. So in the upper left panel, you can see that somebody is um, doing an injection later than typical. So they gave one on day five and the I'm sorry, earlier than usual, they gave it on day five instead of day seven, and then they waited to um, start back on the typical day. And so there's a brief increase and a brief decrease in the IGF-1 values. But you also have the flexibility to do that. You can also do it three days later, and you're, you're definitely seeing a change in the uh, IGF-1 values with that but there's that flexibility that increases the likelihood that our patients are going to be inherent with the day with the once weekly growth hormone and allows that um, uh, on a random basis. It's not something we're asking people to do regularly because then obviously you've got values all over the place that'll be difficult to understand. So I think we have strategies for improving adherence to growth hormone therapy. One is to identify poor adherence and, and look for those markers such as missed appointments, lack of response to medication, missed refills, and ask about the barriers to adherence without being confrontational. We need to emphasize the value of what we're doing and how uh, adherence impacts it and ask the patient you know, what they feel about the current regimen and how do we support and promote their ad adherence. Provide simple and clear instructions and when we can, simplify the regimen. Obviously, that's what we're trying to do with once weekly products. Encourage the use of a medication taking system, not as relevant for our product. Listen to patients and customize the regimen in accordance with the wishes. In our situation with daily growth hormone, that's saying you can take it in the morning, you can take it after school, you can take it at bedtime. It doesn't have to be the same time every day. Try and enlist family members, uh, friends, or community services when needed. We have kids that get their growth hormone shots from their school nurse, something that you can do to try and increase the likelihood. And then always reinforce good behavior and uh, praise those results. Sharing that growth chart and showing the kids are growing is the best thing that we can do. And if they slowed down and are now growing better because they're taking their shot better, they can see those results on the chart. Typical concerns really come up in the adolescence. Um, you know, the treatment burden, adherence and persistence when kids are self-administering without supervision. Um, treatment fatigue. You want to continually reassess their expectations. Do they feel like they're still growing? Do they feel like it's still working? Um, and address those challenges of compliance in, as they become more uh, independent as adolescents. School sports, school trips, school activities. How can we get that medicine to camp if, um, if they're going to be at camp and, and make it okay to take while they're there? We also have common questions about completion of growth hormone therapy of when is it the right time to stop? Are the kids and their parents happy with their treatment outcome? What testing needs to be performed to determine if growth hormone is needed for adults? Will the young adult actually agree to continue treatment if it's warranted? And will patients be more likely to start growth hormone therapy if it's weekly as opposed to daily or continue into adulthood? a weekly product better than a daily product. 
So I think it's important to set expectations uh, for persistent growth hormone treatment in patients transitioning to adults. Some patients will um, need to continue growth hormone therapy into adulthood. And I talk about that at the time we make the diagnosis of growth hormone deficiency in kids. And I keep bringing it up as kids get older and more aware so that they and the parents continue to hear this. We've talked a little bit about some people will need a growth hormone stimulation test and some won't based upon the severity of their deficiency. Um, and there are some challenges of the stimulation testing in people who've had radiation or other insults to the hypothalamic pituitary axis. We have to do IGF-1 levels as the initial screening test um, after discontinuation of growth hormone therapy and may need to do growth hormone provo provocative testing if it's low. I also wanted to um, talk about, will long-acting growth hormone actually be better than daily growth hormone? We know currently that daily growth hormone is inconvenient, painful, and distressing daily injections for some families that lead to lack of adherence, ultimately with reduced efficacy and increased healthcare costs. So I think that we should be thinking of long-acting growth hormone not as non-inferior, but as potentially superior to daily. Um, it may improve overall treatment outcomes via improved adherence, superior IGF-1 levels, and superior metabolic actions. But there are non-physiologic profiles of these medications that may be beneficial, but they could also have different side effects. So I think that's information that we need to continue to think about. Now, if we look back at our patient, um, after completion of uh, treatment, um, linear growth has slowed to less than two centimeters per year. The bone age is 17. Growth hormone needs to be stopped and the IGF-1 retested. If the growth hormone, or I'm sorry, if the IGF-1 is low, then we consider the provocative testing. And the agents that we currently use include insulin tolerance testing, glucagon stimulation testing, or Macy-Morellin testing. And treatment of adult growth hormone deficiency does require lower doses of either daily or um, long-acting growth hormone therapy. And there are products now uh, approved for both adult growth hormone deficiency as daily and long-acting. So finally, I'd like to summarize today's presentation by saying that the diagnosis of pediatric growth hormone deficiency should take into account growth patterns, biochemical testing, and imaging. Daily treatment with growth hormone is frequently met with non-adherence and thus patients are not able to attain maximum adult height outcomes. The increased convenience of long-acting growth hormone compounds may lead to improved adherence and outcomes compared with daily injections, but long-term surveillance of treatment is definitely needed for both safety and efficacy and uh, growth and metabolic outcomes. The benefits of long-acting growth hormone will continue to be small volume injections, easy to use uh, pens with small gauge needles, and 313 fewer injections per year, which is a big deal for kids. There are now three long-acting growth hormone molecules available. Lonapeg somatropin was FDA approved for pediatric growth hormone deficiency in August 2021. Somapacitan was approved for adult growth hormone deficiency in August of 2020 and for pediatric growth hormone deficiency in April of 2023. Somatrogan was approved for pediatric growth hormone deficiency in June 2023. 
So a patient-centered approach in pediatric growth hormone deficiency is essential as it recognizes the importance of individualized care, shared decision-making, holistic support, long-term follow-up, and patient satisfaction. And I think as we have more options to offer our patients, we have to make sure that we're helping them choose the right treatment for their condition and for their best outcomes. That concludes this educational activity. I'd like to thank Dr. Romano for her insights in tonight's discussion, as well as her presentation. I hope that you found it informative and useful to your practice. Thank you very much for participating. And thank you for having me, Dr. Miller. Absolutely. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZAB860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.